With every change of administration comes the question of what needs to change and what needs to be retained. In this episode of B-Side, Business World reporter Patricia B. Mirasol takes a look back at how the 1987 Philippine Constitution was drafted with Bernardo M. Villegas, an economist and one of its framers. They also discuss foreign ownership liberalization, the additional factors driving foreign direct investments, plus the key area the next administration needs to focus on. Today, we'll be discussing the 1987 Philippine Constitution, some of its recent amendments, and the possibility of a constitutional revision. Perhaps we could start by having you introduce yourself first and share a bit about your professional background. I'm Bernie Villegas Bernardo. I have a PhD in economics from Harvard. And right now, I'm a university professor at the University of Asia and the Pacific. And as you will learn, I was one of those who drafted the Philippine Constitution during the government of former President Cory Aquino. I have been very much involved in advising presidents, starting with Corazon Aquino all the way to the present, partly directly and partly indirectly by helping them to promote the Philippines as an investment site from investors from all over the world. And I sit in the boards of a number of corporations. And uh, at the age of 83, I'm still very active, both in uh, formulate uh, the right policies and programs for development and uh, people in the private sector. Did you always want to become an economist? Well, not really. I studied accounting. I'm a CPA. But at some point, I was offered a scholarship from the U.S., And uh, accounting was not in their list, but economics was. It is related enough to accounting. So that's how I got into economics. And since that time on, I've been more of an economist than an accountant. Although accounting was a very good background to understand, especially what we call microeconomics. So some economists can be too macro that they don't even know how to read the balance sheet. And I'm glad I'm not that kind of an economist. As one of the framers of the 1987 Constitution, could you please walk us through how the Commission made a clean break by creating the post-EDSA Constitution? Well, as I said, the Constitution that was a product of a Constitutional Convention in 1971-72 was referred to as the Marcus Constitution because he really made use of it to declare martial law. So it was more or less aimed towards allowing someone to have absolute truth. And that's exactly what happened, though. And so the first objective of the Constitutional Commission was to make sure that that would not happen again. And that is why, although others may think otherwise, the parliamentary form of government is not the appropriate government because it removes the balance of power between executive and the legislative. Under a parliamentary form, You know, a prime minister is also the executive of the country. And as Marcos was able to do, he was able to influence the government to declare martial law. So my very first statement is that we were able to depart from the constitution under Marcos by restoring the balance of power, the checks and balances among the justice department, the executive department, and the legislative department. So I would consider that a very important shift. And that is why I don't think that in any future constitution, at least in the next 10 to 20 years, people will be in favor of the parliamentary reform for the obvious reason that parties don't mean anything in this country. 
So once a president is elected, everyone joins his party. And that will be a very dangerous situation in a parliamentary form. So you will not have the checks and balances until we really have political parties. It will not be wise for us to have a parliamentary form of government. So that's, that's in the area of politics. Although when we discuss the differences among the three uh, constitutions that you referred to, 1935, 1972, and 1986, 1987, actually it was ratified, we can distinguish among three sectors, economic, political, and social. And that's how I'm going to talk about the differences. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the most salient differences between the 1987 constitution and its predecessors. Which provisions from the 1935 and 1973 constitutions were retained uh, in the current one, and why were these retained, and which ones were also removed? My point of view, the most important difference is the way we define the common good. And I had a major role in introducing the difference. And let me explain. Under the 1935 constitution, which was replicated in the 1972 constitution, the common good was defined as the greatest good for the greatest number. It's typical American pragmatic philosophy. Some of us thought that although in cases that are debatable, like how to call a certain city, whether or not the budget should be 6% education, etc., which are very debatable, there are certain issues that should not be subject to majority opinion because they go very much into the nature of human beings and society. And that is why we wanted to define the common good as a social or juridical order which enables every single member of society to attain his or her fullest human development. So that no one is excluded. Because if you follow the greatest good for the greatest number, there can be situations in which an erring majority can tyrannize a minority. And by referring to a social order which enables every single member of society, you will not have a situation like that, where because human beings can err and the majority can say something, can decide on something that will violate the human rights of the minority. And just let me explain how I was able to defend the new definition. You know, there was one of our uh, members who was strongly objecting against a change. He was a lawyer and he said, we already have a jurisprudence called the greatest majority uh, rule. And if you change it, you will confuse us lawyers. You know, I wanted to tell him, you lawyers are confused enough, so I don't mind adding another confusion. But I, I told him, your honor, we had to uh, refer to one another as your honor. Let me explain. Suppose Hitler already had the tools of social weather station, Asia, and so on and so forth. And he conducted a poll. And the Germans at that time were majority Aryans. Suppose 70% of the Germans said, it's about time to exterminate the Jews. Would that majority justify the killing of any Jew? But still, he wasn't convinced. So I went to the jugular. I said, that colleague of mine was a Muslim. I reminded him, I want to remind your honor that we, so-called Christians, are a majority in this country. You are the Catholics and the Protestants together. You would be more than 80%. Suppose one day we go to a poll and we are not perfect. We can make the wrong decision to say it's about time we exterminate the Muslims from the Philippines. 
would that be justified? So I was able to convince him. And so I think that's the most important change that we cannot have an erring majority impose their will on the minority on fundamental matters of human rights and so on and so forth. I think that that's um, a great redefinition of the common good. Let's talk a little bit about some of the tenets from the 1972 constitution that was retained by the Constitutional Commission of 1986. Well, I think there is a continuity between 72 and 87 in the area of devolving more and more functions to the local governments. So this is what is known as the principle of subsidiarity. What can be done by lower units, by individuals, communities, should not be absorbed by higher institutions. That is in keeping with individual freedom. And I think that the devolution of more and more authority to local government is another reason why we really don't need a federal form of government. If we just implement whatever was already in the 1972 and 1987 constitutions of devolving more and more functions to the local government units, we will attain what a federal form of government intends, that you don't have a very centralized government dictating everything to the lower units. And so I think that was something that was positive already in the 1972 constitution that I appreciate in the 1987 constitution. Now, as I'm sure you know, the so-called Mandanas Garcia ruling that now actually obliges the national government to devolve a lot of funds to the local government units will make things even more possible for that devolution. Because you can devolve powers, but if you don't give them money and everything is still funded from above, that's uh, really meaningless. Now, I'm very excited about the way in the next administration, the mayors and governors will be able to use that amount. It's a huge amount. So they can choose what their priorities are they will not be told by the national government, you do this and you do that in this field. But there is also a danger. If you have the wrong mayors and governors, they may also be spent. That's always the risk you take in a democracy. But I think that the devolution of power, the local government is a very positive thing that was introduced by 72 and was reinstated in 86. That was not very clear in the 1935 constitution. I think the anti constitution was too, did not take into account that we are not like the United States. We are not different states, no? In the United States, states have a lot of power that cannot be absorbed by the federal government. But somehow they ignored that. And we really have a very centralized form of government, especially precisely because our first president of the Commonwealth was a very strong personality in the person of Manuel Quezon. He was a very strong personality and that did not encourage a lot of decision-making at the lower levels. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the 1987 constitution still has a provision for martial law. I mean, I keep hearing the expression never again to martial law, but then yeah. technically speaking, Martial law is possible. So despite the country's yeah. experience with martial law back in the 70s and 80s, what, why is it yes. necessary to still include a provision for it? Well, because there can be really emergency situations. Martial law in itself is not evil. There are situations 
tremendous uh, disorder introduced by revolutionary groups. The only way to have order is to have some amount of martial law. But the 1980 Constitution makes it much more difficult precisely because the Congress has to approve. And if it is not controlled by the president, which is the case in a parliamentary form, then you have just another check in the power of the president. In the parliamentary form, the prime minister is also the chief executive. And that is why it was so easy for Marcos to declare martial law. But we need martial law provision because, as we were saying, a society is not perfect. You can have certain groups that may not believe in the rule of law and may start uh, all sorts of revolutionary movements that can be stopped only by martial law. Moving on to the business aspect of things, what are your thoughts on the recent amendments of the Constitution that are now driving foreign investments? In particular, I'm referring to the recent amendments on the Foreign Investments Act, the Retail Authorization Act. Act, and the Public Services Act. Will these amendments, yes. amendments indeed boost business growth and the economy in the long term? I'm 101% in favor of all those provisions, because without sounding like a hero, during the deliberations of the 1986 commission, I was one of the few who wanted to expurge the first Filipino first mentality among our politicians, because it has been one of the sources of our backwardness. You know, I've always said the Filipino first mentality ended up in really prejudicing the poor, who did not have all the employment opportunities, the capital that could have been brought in by foreign investors, but actually gave the strategic industries of the Philippines to the few rich people who could afford to invest in them without any competition from abroad. And so we had all the oligopolies in practically every single important utility and so on and so forth. And therefore, I always maintain that Filipino first historically amounted to rich Filipinos first, damned the rest of us. And that is why I was so glad that in these three acts that were amended, we now can allow a lot of foreign capital to come in, not limited to 40%, so they can compete with the elite in this country. So it has introduced a lot more competition. Now, for people who are afraid that foreigners may control our economy, that's where a strong executive using the Philippine Competition Commission should be able to address these issues. You take a look at China. China allows Amazon or practically all of the social network companies to come in. But when they start abusing, they can cancel their license. They can do all sorts of things to address whatever problems they may have with foreigners. But let them in first. And let them first supplement our very meager long-term capital. And especially now, I'm sure you know that our government is buried in debt because of the pandemic. So the next administration will not be able to borrow, borrow, borrow the way the Duterte administration did. Now, where will they get the capital to continue the build, build program? Not from our budget. Our budget will be so burdened with repaying the debt and then 
we have education, we have health, the rural development. So it is so good that now you can have foreign investors owning 100% of railways, of tollways, of all of these infrastructures that we still need very badly. We cannot be complacent. Duterte has done a good job in Build, Build, Build. The next two administrations will have to do even better. Because if you compare our infrastructure with those of our neighbors, they struggle to Taiwan, to South Korea, even to China. Our infrastructure, no matter how much we have improved it in the past six years, is still so poor. And that is where I'm so glad that now we can allow foreigners to invest. In fact, I give two examples, very micro, which show how wrong it was to limit the foreigners to 40%. First was the scandal of the uh, international airport, the Frankfurt. They were Germans were forced to have a local partner. And our national airport took so long to complete because the local partners were corrupt. And it postponed the finishing of the Manila International Airport. Another example is that the best international airport right now in the Philippines is the Mactan Airport. Now, Mega White was being charged for going against the Constitution because they allowed their foreign partner to have more than 40%. So what if it's more than 40% if we have the best international airport in the country? So that's an example where we should not limit investment in very capital-intensive infrastructures, which we need. So I'm very happy that we have those three uh, amendments under the Duterte administration. And in the next administration, and they're going ahead. If there are moves to continue amending the Constitution, the only provisions I would like to amend are those that still limit education. There's another advertising to 40% and even 0%. It's really ironical that our neighbors who are so rich allow Harvard, allow Cambridge, allow Oxford to put up their branches. We do not allow them. We cannot allow a foreigner to put up. And I want those limitations in the Constitution to be removed because they can be removed only by an amendment, not by uh, legislation. Am I in favor of pursuing the amendment of the 1987 Constitution? Yes, only on those provisions, not on federalization and not on other vital issues that I, I will talk about, which, in fact, I consider sacred. Perhaps we can talk about those vital issues now. What vital issues do you consider sacred that cannot be touched? So this is now where the social comes in. I said you can distinguish among the economic and all these things about foreign investments, etc. Then the political, uh, federal, parliamentary, presidential. Incidentally, let me just say that I played a role accidentally, because my name is Villegas, in a very important issue of whether or not we should have a unicameral versus bicameral form of government, but still presidential, not parliamentary. So once we approved that it was presidential, we had to decide, well, should we only have one chamber or two chambers? And up to me, I was the last to vote because of my name, Villegas, it was tight, unicameral, bicameral. So they all looked at me. I said, bicameral. And so now we have a bicameral government and people are blaming me for sometimes the Senate being the obstacle to so many things that we want to change. For example, it took a long time for these acts to be uh, amended. The lower house actually passed them two years ago, but all this grandstanding in the Senate and so on and so forth delayed. And so people ask me, are you now regretting that you were in favor of bicameral? I said, not yet, because my view of legislation is that you must have a lower house, the House of Representatives, that will worry about local problems. Then you need another chamber that will be very knowledgeable about what's happening to Ukraine 
whether all of this talk about the comprehensive economic partnership should be passed, should we join our... So people who are very educated, that's why it's called the Senate, older people were supposed to have more wisdom and more knowledge. And so you do, you do need a separate chamber that will worry about a lot of the issues that do not have anything to do with local problems. And so that was my idea, to have the Tanyadas, the Diocnos, the Salongas of the Philippines. These were the uh, model senators, very erudite, beyond partisan problems in the local areas. Obviously, I was not expecting that a lot of actors, comedians, etc., would become senators. But I still think there should be a bicameral form of government. So that was one of the vital issues that you were referring to. This is more a political issue. I'm not referring yet to the vital issues. Now I will talk about the vital issues. The 1987 constitution, in my mind, has to be singled out as the only constitution in the world, and some of you will disagree, that states very clearly the state has to protect the unborn and the mother from the moment of conception until death. So I think that is one of the most fundamental human rights, the right to life. And I don't think there's any constitution in the world that has that provision. And that's why, in my opinion, an abortion law will never, never prosper in this country because it will be unconstitutional. And then also because I think the family is the very foundation of the stability of any society. You destroy the family and you destroy society. And that's why there's another provision which states that the family is the foundation of society and marriage is an inviolable institution. So I think people who will promote divorce will have a very difficult time because they will have to go against those two specific statements. So I think that's the social provisions that I will really defend literally to death. I will definitely fight any effort in the future. And here I would like to mention our chairwoman of the Constitutional Commission, Cecilia Munoz Palma. She was justice of the Supreme Court. She was the one pushing a lot the provisions about the family and about marriage. Thank you for that. Actually, there, there are a lot of Filipinos who agree with you in, in, with regards to these two vital institutions. The right to live is a fundamental right and that the family is the foundation of society. I'd like to circle back a bit on the amendments to the Retail Trade Liberalization Act, the Foreign Investments Act, and the Public Services Act. I read somewhere that some of these amendments allow changes to be made if provided for by law. Can that phrase be exploited? No, well, except for the vital issues like the right to life, the family as its foundation, all other issues in economics and politics are really very debatable. And they should not be really enshrined in the constitution because things can change and so on and so forth. If 20 years from now, we already have all the long-term capital that we need to our infrastructure, I wouldn't be against a law saying, okay, now let's start making sure that foreigners, especially the Chinese, do not buy all of these infrastructures of ours, because that's a very circumstantial thing. Right now, we need them very badly because of circumstance, I said, that we are buried in debt. But there will come a time when there will be enough capital locally for these long-term investments. And then we can change the law. 
So the principle here is don't enshrine in the fundamental law certain provisions which can change with circumstances. I agree very much to that phrase unless otherwise specified by law. The ideal constitution is a short constitution. In fact, that is also one of the defects that we were not able to prevent in the 1987 constitution. It's too verbose. It covers so many things that could have been legislated in the future. But you should understand why. We were traumatized by martial law, by Edsa Revolution. And in the minds of practical, all of us, let's do everything possible to prevent Marcos coming back. And the way to do that was to be very, very specific about everything that Marcos used of to abuse certain powers. And we overdid putting too many restrictions. Do you know why people were against foreign investments in addition to the Filipino first mentality? They thought Marcos was too open to foreign investments. Though. So it was just an anti-Marcos move. Just out of curiosity, where did the 40% come from? That was already part of the 1972 constitution, which says that 40% will guarantee that the Filipino owners will be in complete control. So if it's close to 50, they might still be able to control. So 60% is guarantee that the Filipinos will never be overruled by the foreign owners. It's ironic that people normally don't like change, but that whenever national elections roll in, people are excited about change. I mentioned the possibility of having shifting to a federal parliamentary form of government because discussions related to that topic tend to surface again in, na in the national conversation. You mentioned that there's all we already have a local government code that devolves everything to the local units. However, as late as 2018, I've been hearing politicians saying that if we shift to a federal parliamentary form of government, you give each province the chance to chart their own destinies. You give each province the privilege of producing their own income and not being welfare dependent. What accounts for this appeal? First of all, I think that administrations have not been very effective in actually implementing the provisions of the local government code. So it's really a failure of implementation. And among others is they were not really giving the funds to the local government officials to implement their own programs. But I think the first step is precisely the Mandanas-Garcia ruling. Those will be billions and billions that the national government will be obliged under law. Otherwise, they would be declared unconstitutional not to give to the governors and mayors. So I think that's the first step towards really implementing the local government code. I agree with you. There will be, I'm sure, another movement under the next administration for changes, no? Because, well, some people just want to uh, catch attention by saying, here we are, we will change, you know, without being partisan. I think, in a way, what the BBM group is saying should be what we should aspire for, continuity. So this idea of always doing something that is different from the previous administration is not necessarily for the common good. So I think we should take a look at all the good things that have been done so far and continue building on them instead of reversing the move. And I don't know if you've heard me say that our GDP will continue to grow at 6 to 7% because different administrations since the time of Cory Aquino, no matter what quality of the president we elected, the best and the brightest were always appointed in Central Bank, Secretary of Finance, NEDA, everything that had to do with economics. And these various technocrats started building institutions, reforms that were built on top of one another. So now our economy has very strong fundamentals 
fundamentals that can withstand the election of the wrong president. Being very frank, I don't think Duterte was the right president. But even under him, things moved. And from 2011 to 2019, one of the empirical evidence I show, 2011 to 2019, separated two different presidents. 2011, 2016 was Noinoi. 2016, 2019, Duterte. Our economy grew systematically at 6 to 7% during that period. And the two presidents couldn't be more different in qualities, in governance, and so on and so forth. And so I say our economy will continue to grow at 6 to 7% after we recover from the pandemic. That will be one of the fastest growth rates still in the region. So that's the way I look at the future. That gives me hope and optimism that the Philippines will be able to weather this pandemic time. We're at the tail end of it anyway. Talking about the best and the brightest that are appointed in the Central Bank in NEDA. NEDA has a vision for the country called Ambition Natin 2014. Yes. What are your thoughts about this? Do you think that we're on our way there? Do you think that we can realize this goal of having a strongly rooted, comfortable, and secure life for every Filipino by 2014? Yes, as long as. First of all, I already guarantee the growth rate, at least at 6 to 7%. That's can be sustained because of these fundamentals. But in order to attain that vision, we have to make sure that growth of 6 to 7% is being distributed more equitably and that we really address the problem of poverty. As you know, the poverty was brought down to the uh, benefit of people at the lower level by the Duterte administration to about 16% before the pandemic. Now, during the pandemic, it was inevitable that poverty incidence would go up again over 20%. But I think we have enough tools to bring it down again during the next administration. At least 12 to 14%, if possible, lower. And the administration after the next one can bring it down to single digit. As long as we really focus on improving agricultural productivity, that is the Achilles heel of the Philippine economy. And because agriculture is in rural areas, we address the problem of rural poverty because 75% of people who look, fall below the poverty line are in rural areas. I can say something positive about what I saw during the Duterte administration. When I look at how they were spending the infrastructure money of the government, I saw a very favorable trend under Mark Villar, that they were spending practically all of it in the countryside and not in Manila and Cebu. Because their idea was if Manila and Cebu want better skyways, better railroads and subways, let Ramon Ang of San Miguel do it. Let Manny Pangilinan of Metro Pacific do it. Let Ricky Rason, let Mega White, let DMCI. And I think that's the right distribution of work. Urban areas are profitable enough for these tycoons to spend their money in. I'm especially impressed at the way Ramon Ang is going to build the international airport in Bulacan on his own money with no government money. And I think we should continue doing what was done. All of our public money for infrastructure should be farm-to-market roads, irrigation systems, all these infrastructures that we denied our farmers in the past. And so I'm sure the next administration will have the common sense to continue what Duterte did. And the ambition 4040 will be achieved if we focus on rural agricultural development, the quality of education. So I want to see that budget of the government rise from 3% to 6% in education, especially in improving the salaries of teachers. So we can expect quality teaching from them. 
As you know, we have the poorest performance in international tests in reading, arithmetic, and so on and so forth. And that can be addressed only by improving the quality of public education at the basic educational level. All the others can be done by the private sector. Digitalization, you know, you see all these telecom companies doing a good job. And let's hope that with this Public Service Act amendment, you will have more companies like Converge and others that will compete with the existing telecom companies because we need to improve interconnection very well. I, for one, am also very happy that there are more farm-to-market infrastructure being built now because it will help lessen the perception of Imperial Manila, number one. And number two, will definitely reduce the incidence of poverty. I think it's such a sad irony that food producers are oftentimes the ones who can't afford quality food. Now, I'd like to address your phrase, Imperial Manila. There is now a very visible trend of business investments and residential structures moving out of Metro Manila, first to Calabar Zone, with Batangas as the epicenter. It's amazing now how you see all that movement of businesses and residences from Ayala, Alabang, to New Valley, to Calamba, all the way up to Batangas. And if you take a look at the corridor of Batangas, hundreds and hundreds of factories are being put up there by industrial zones. First, we live in Aldings, the Ayalas, that is a very favorable trend. The next area, which will be a new Metro Manila, is Central Luzon, especially the so-called Pampanga Triangle, San Fernando Angeles, Subic Clark. And you will have Tarlac and Bulacan really benefiting from that. So Imperial Manila is no longer the case. We are beheading Metro Manila. And in the south, Iloilo is the most attractive place that businessmen are moving towards because of the way their infrastructure has been improved over the last 10 years, even before the Build, Build, Build program of Duterte. Senator Drillon led a group of local government officials in that area, and they built some of the most advanced infrastructures. And I'm so glad that we can say that the Visayas has its own candidate for replacing Metro Manila. In Mindanao, it's no-brainer. So the vow is that definitely going to be the metropolis that will compete with Manila, followed very closely by Cagayan de Oro. I'm glad you mentioned the phrase Imperial Manila because that no longer is the case, especially in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, I've run through all my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to share? I would just like to reemphasize for the next administration the importance really of rural and agricultural development that cannot be overemphasized. Our biggest failure came from decades of neglecting the poor farmers. And I would like to see the imperfections of a grand reform addressed in the next administration. What do I mean by that? It was not wrong for a grand reform to have fragmented huge land holdings into small farms given to the small farmers because it was required by social justice. You could not have lands owned by a few families that would have definitely never contributed to the distribution of wealth and income. But what happened was that once they gave one to two hectares to every farmer, millions of them, the government literally told them, I'll say in Tagalog, Jan kayo ang lupa. That's exactly what they did. They did not provide them with the farm-to-market roads, irrigation systems, post office facilities that were required for the small farmers not to make money. So they ended up poorer before at least the landlords were giving them all the inputs. Now they had a piece of land, but nothing else. And that's why I said, kanin nyo lupa. Now, we have to undo the harm that was done by that incomplete agrarian reform, which means more and more farm-to-market roads are being built. So let's continue that trend. 
but we have to deconsolidate those small farms, not to take away the ownership from these farmers, but to help them adopt models that we can learn from our neighbors on how to make sure that the small farms are consolidated once more to achieve economies of scale. Coconut farmers with one to two hectares will never rise from poverty if they're not able to put together, let's say, 2,000 hectares of coconut farms consolidated either through cooperatives, through what the Malaysians call nucleus estate, which means the small farmers will lease their farms to a big corporation. In Malaysia, it was Sime Darby Gautry. And then it's the big corporation that will coordinate the transfer of technology to the small farms, will buy the products from them, will process them into much higher value. Right now, copra and coconut oil are the lowest value of coconut. You know, coconut water, coconut milk, coconut sugar, there's tremendous demand all over the world. I mean, Coca-Cola and Pepsi cannot have enough of coconut water. But you cannot do that with each individual managing his one to two hectare farms. You need the Del Monte, the Dole model, which we were able to do in pineapple. But now we have to do it in many other products. I can think of cacao, of coffee, of durian, of avocado. Avocado is so much in demand in China, for example. But that requires leadership. That requires a cooperation between the executive and the legislative to make those things happen. There will be a lot of bureaucratic obstacles. So that means that the right people have to be appointed to the key agricultural positions. And one of the objectives is reconsolidation of land, especially in coconut and in sugar. There are some types of crops that can be grown small scale. I'm sure you've heard of plantitos and plantitas. You can grow vegetables in small scale but not fruit products that I mentioned. And that would require really very good organization on the part of the next administration. Thank you very much for that explanation on nucleus estates and how we need to have the right people appointed to key agricultural positions. And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Bernardo M. Villegas, an economist and one of the framers of the 1987 Constitution, speaking with Business World reporter Patricia B. Marisol. A few takeaways from their conversation. The Filipino first mentality must be expunged. According to Mr. Villegas, easing restrictions and requirements on foreign ownership in businesses will generate more jobs, improve basic services, allow the exchange of technology, and help the economy recuperate from the COVID-19 pandemic. Next, Mr. Villegas also shared that agriculture is the Achilles heel of the economy. According to Mr. Villegas, the Philippines' biggest failure stems from decades of neglecting poor farmers. To rectify this, he recommended building farm-to-market roads and adopting models that will allow farmers to achieve economies of scale, even with their small land holdings. Having every Filipino enjoy a strongly rooted, comfortable, and secure life is doable, Mr. Villega said, provided that the government focuses on equality of education, infrastructure development, and yes, agriculture. The latter alone will reduce the poverty rate as about three-quarters of the poor are from rural areas. This B-Side episode was recorded remotely in April 2022. It was produced by Joseph Emmanuel El Garcia and me, Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening.